All right. Let's find a seat. Hope you're well. Thanks for the one hand clap. Appreciate that. <laughs> Film the love. <laughs> Landon asked, is there going to be an intermission? I'm like, you know, I, uh, this isn't a trilogy in one night. We're not doing a binge watching. Although, it's not because I lack content. Uh, I, uh, I, I do get to teach in like Karis Bible College and the one in Sherman, uh, I had a few windows open to be able to speak there, and I'm doing the storyline of the Bible, and uh, the condensed version is six hours. So uh, I just want to go to Bible school, sign up for Sherman, I guess, and you can hear my six hours on the storyline of the Bible uh, and other things. You know, there's other okay people too, but... <laughs> Tonight, I do have something specific on my heart, uh, and I believe it will encourage you. It may be for just a few people specifically. Of course, I, I would hate to share anything that I don't believe anyone could get something from it, um, but for whatever reason, this, this specific word I have uh, tonight, just things I would want to share that's from my heart, it felt particularly pointed. You know, I don't, I don't usually when I'm, you know, getting to spend time at one of our campuses, I don't bring a canned message like I've gone elsewhere. I'll, even if I take some previous notes, I always rework them and prayerfully consider, you know, who's going to be present and what does God want to say. And this particular one, just today, I needed to reshuffle things and God put some new things on my heart just to remind you of. I don't know if I'll say anything tonight that you don't already know. Um, that'd be awesome if, if you just don't know these certain things. But to learn something, uh, it is said uh, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. It's not that instruction isn't important, but uh, if you've raised children, it's very rare they get it on the first time ever. So, so I hope to just maybe just encourage you because I don't know... My guess is that a few of you are going through something really big, a real struggle. Uh, generically put in reference to uh, my title, A Storm. And there's certain things in a storm that you might be going through that you need to remember. And so it's with that that I want to help you remember some important things. But before I just dive into the scriptures, let me pray to be fully present to the Holy Spirit. Father, uh, it is because of you that we are here, because of you that we live, whether we know it or not or acknowledge it or not, it's because of you that we are just alive, and we thank you for that. We posture our heart continually toward gratitude, that no matter what we might be going through, no matter what life, life circumstances might uh, be in our life, no matter what condition life might be in right now, we remain with a posture of gratitude towards you that this life is precious and it is a miracle. And we are grateful for that. We are grateful for your son. We are grateful, Lord Jesus, that you came and humbled yourself and lived. And that in living, you also died, died for us, that we might experience eternal life. And so, Holy Spirit, 
As we open up the scriptures, I pray that you are the instructor, you are the teacher, you are the revealer, you are the comforter. May you lead and guide us into all truth so that our lives reveal the truth of Jesus. And that in revealing that truth, may your love be known to us, but also known through us. So that this world might see the real Jesus through us. And I thank you for that. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The purpose of our church, uh, this church, is to grow people in Christ. That's why we exist. Your purpose is your why. You need to have at least some measure of understanding why you exist. And any collective entity, whether it be a church um, or business or family, needs to be able to articulate why, why do we exist. And, uh, you know, as a church, we don't get to make up why the church exists, at least in general. You know? You know that, right? We don't just make that up. <laughs> we were kind of told why we're here. Um, but each church can articulate it different. And the way we have chosen to articulate that, because this is deep in our hearts, as to why, why I get up, why I commit myself to this church, and that's to grow people. To grow people a particular way. We're, we're, I mean, church growth is nice, um, but there's a lot of church growth that can be manufactured and done carnally, and it has, in the end, no eternal value. I just, if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, when it talks about wood, hay, and stubble, I think a lot of churches throughout American history and world history are made up of wood, hay, and stubble. Um, Not because that they don't love Jesus, but what they're doing isn't necessarily for Jesus. And so we, we, though, you know, we enjoy church growth, we're far more interested in growing people. You growing up, you maturing you becoming mature, and what kind of maturity, maturity? What kind of growing do we believe in you and want to uh, structure everything around growth for you? It's in your identity in Christ. Because if we can help you understand your identity in Christ, then we don't have to give you a bunch of behavioral modification. Um, we don't have to shove moral and ethic down your throat because you do what you are. You didn't know that? Okay. You'll know that today. <laughs> you do what you are. You, like, it is from your identity how you see yourself that you behave. You live that out. And most, most religious entities focus on the behavior, what you should and shouldn't do, and what you should be shamed into doing rather than getting to the heart of the matter, which is who you are, who, who Christ says you are and who you are in Christ. And then everything flows from that. But you need to grow up in that because you can get an initial revelation of that. You can get a cognitive understanding of that. Um, but everything else in your life is structured towards telling you who you are, and it's not in Christ. So you have to be pretty vigilant at it. You have to be committed to it. And that's just everything about what we do as a church is, is centered around helping you not just understand cognitively who you are in Christ, but actually mature and grow into that. Um, and that 
can be an immense amount of explanation as to how we think about that, how we structure things for that. Um, and then each facet of ministry, we articulate how this particular facet of ministry, like weekend services or worship services, life groups, grow teams, next steps, everything is articulated, whether you know it or not, as to this is how we're going to help, we're going to utilize this mechanism to grow people in Christ. Um, but rather than giving you some just understanding of that, I, I want to get to the heart of the matter in something, and that is because chances are you're, you're either going through something significant, you have recently gone through something significant, or you are about to go through something significant. And just for the sake of an analogy, just a storm, uh, that every single one of us go through storms in life. Those storms are to varying degrees and intensity. Um, they're varying in their length, and they're varying in why they happen in your life. Sometimes we, we, we have storms in our life because we make horrid and selfish and short-sighted decisions, and we cause them, but not all of them. Many of them happen because you and I are in a broken and fallen world. You know, I lived... Uh, in Oklahoma, thank you, Jesus, for saving me by grace through faith and a change of address to be a Texan. You look at my, my driver's license, says I'm a Texan, so I'm a Texan. I lived a lot, and thank you, I got all of a sudden feel more support. Um, <laughs> uh, I lived a, lo- a, little, a long time, most of my life, in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma is identified as Tornado Alley. Okay, just by sheer geography, that area is more prone to tornadoes, right? And you don't have to try hard to, like, if you live down the I-35 corridor in Oklahoma, like, you're going to have tornadoes, right? You're just, like, life and, you know, governments and weather and all of that just, like, brings storms in your life. Uh, economy fluctuations, those all cause storms in our lives, and sometimes we have nothing to do with it. It just happens. It happens to us. Again, just by way of reminder, not all of them. Sometimes they're self-imposed. But regardless of how they come or why they come, what do you do when they come? What can you learn while in them? Because most of us think that if we'll just, we treat our life and God like a formula. If I just pray this right prayer, if I just act this certain way, we'll get through this quickly. And we live a lot of our life just kind of with a survival mindset, a survival way of thinking. Just buckle down and get through it, right? Anybody else, like, you know, especially if you're like, you're real tough and got a lot of grit, like you just got to fight your way through it. Just, just survive, get through it. And that, that is one strategy. And you might be able to make it through on that strategy. But the more storms that happen, uh, the, the, the worse it's going to get, like the harder it's going to get. Um, you don't always get to muscle your way through a storm. But actually storms in your life, again, regardless of why they come, actually provide you with a unique opportunity for growth. That's going to surprise you, and it's not going to encourage you a lot right now, but let's stay with me for the rest of this time, and I, I think I might be able to get you to see storms different, um, and this is, this, is a, this is a very costly learning for me, and I have to remind myself of it because I'm in the midst of one right now. It's not as extreme as, say, the one we went through with my son, 
Um, but it still is a storm. I'm going through a storm right now in my life. And so how can I grow from this? And what is God doing in the midst of it? Because, I mean, like at a base level, you just need to know storm, the existence of storms in your life does not remove God's existence from you, right? Even if it feels like God is far away, like that's not true. So um, one particular story is in Matthew chapter 14 from verse 22 to 33. And in your Bible, it probably says something like Jesus walks on water. That's the heading for that section. Uh, And so this story is Jesus just feeds the 5,000, sends his disciples uh, uh, in a boat on the other side of the lake. And this particular lake, if I understand it correctly, uh, is about six miles long. It's kind of tall and long, and he sends them across. It's about six miles. And this story is in all four Gospels. I'm only going to show you one verse from, from chapter 14 of Matthew, but it's in all four Gospels. And so each of the Gospels gives just slightly different um, accounts of this. Jesus goes up the mountain to pray, sends them across the lake, uh, and they're somewhere in the middle of the night. It's like 3 a.m., some, somewhere around there. They said it's the third watch, which is roughly like in the 1 to 3 a.m., time period. Uh, And John says, I think it's John, that says they were making headway painfully. They were exerting a lot of effort and going nowhere. Have you ever felt like that in life? Yeah. Um, One of the most extreme times I felt, that's, that's the way I described it, is I feel like I'm pressing the accelerator in neutral. I mean, like I'm pumping the, I mean, I'm pushing the gas, exerting a lot of energy, and there is no forward progress, right? And I nearly made one of the dumbest decisions of my life when just getting irritated and impatient in that season. And so this is where the disciples are, and they're only about halfway, so they're about three miles across, and they are making headway painfully, is what it, it says. So they were, they were exerting a lot of energy. They were getting exhausted and going nowhere. Uh, and then they see Jesus walking on the water, and they think he's a ghost. Wouldn't you? I mean, if you're, if you're in a boat, and you see some entity, some figure coming towards you, you think, I'm dead. And this is hell. <laughs> like, like, the Grim Reaper is after me. Um, and again, I have felt like that in life. I am exerting every bit of effort, going nowhere, and it just feels like the end. Um, and yet it's Jesus. Uh, and so they're freaking out quite a bit and trying to figure out what this is. And Jesus recognizes that moment, and he makes this one statement. This is an incredibly powerful statement. Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. So, when we're in the midst of a storm that we are exerting every bit of energy we have and making no forward progress, regardless of how or why this storm came about, we are exhausting ourselves and we wish it would just be over and yet we're only like halfway across the lake. What would Jesus say to us when we're in the middle of that? Don't worry, it'll be over soon. Let me wave my little magic Jesus wand and it just go away. 
That's what we would prefer, right? Just make it go away. Am I the only one that feels that way? Okay. Just a little dark down there and a little bright up here. So I just need a few more louder verbal cues when I'm asking a question, just so I know. Otherwise, I got to plow deeper, you know? Um, so what would Jesus say to us when you're in, in, in a horrible circumstance, whether you caused it or not, when you're exerting all of your energy and are exhausting yourself and going nowhere and you want to give up, what does Jesus do in that moment? He says, take heart. Now, let me just tell you, if you are in that condition and you are freaking out, anybody had a freak out? Okay. The most unhelpful thing to hear in that moment is take heart. I got a thing with sharks, and by a thing, I mean I'm terrified of them. Um, so I just don't go in the ocean. <laughs> I grew up in Oklahoma and I live in Texas. I don't like the ocean, it's beautiful from a distance and on pictures. I'm more of a mountain guy, just truthfully. Like, I prefer mountains than beaches. But, I mean, I, I've like gone on cruise and I enjoy looking at the ocean. I don't enjoy being in the ocean. And I have, like, horrible nightmares about shark attacks in my life. Okay? And I've seen, you know, those videos. They, like, do whole weeks about shark attacks. Like, that makes it better for me, I guess. I don't know. And... You know, someone's in the water and like a shark comes up to them to attack them. Like what you would be afraid, right? If you're not, there's something wrong with you. Okay. Um, and 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 you're in the water and a shark is coming at you and it is going to eat you. Like that's just what sharks do. Like great white, their eyes turn black. Is that not demonic? And someone from a boat, from safety, says, take heart. That's super unhelpful. Right? So, like, <laughs> so like what, is this, what is this? Like, how, Jesus, how is this helpful? Okay, so um, fear responses are hardwired into your brain and body. Like, you are going to have feelings of fear. You have feelings of fear before you recognize you have feelings of fear. Uh, um, when you get woke up in the night by a loud noise, your body's already responding before you even realize there was a noise and you're awake. So you have, you have fear responses hardwired into your body and into your brain. So you're not going to be able to avoid feelings of fear. The question is, what are you going to do about it? What does Jesus say about it? You're going to experience feelings of fear, and there is a difference between having feelings of fear and being afraid. Because as soon as you recognize you're having feelings of fear, you have a choice. And that choice is critical. There is a tiny little space between... The stimulus and the response. 
the thing that caused fear and your recognition of fear. And what you choose to do in that space is critical. What you choose to fill that space with, that space with is critical. Over 365 times in your Bible, it says some variation of don't be afraid. So the storm that you're in, that you're exhausting yourself with and making no forward progress and are afraid, varying degrees of worry, anxiety, stress, that's all variations of fear, okay? You get a choice. You're going to feel afraid, but just what are you going to do with those feelings? And what Jesus says is to take heart, which means to recognize you're having these feelings of fear. Now choose what to do with them. So the next thing he says is absolutely critical. Take heart, it is I. Now that statement, it is I, as that's translated, is a Greek phrase that I can't say very well. So I'm not even going to try. But it is. It is the same, uh, so your Old Testament, a couple hundred years before Jesus, was being translated from Hebrew to Greek, and that Greek translation is called the Septuagint, in case you care about that stuff, and it uses that statement that here it gets translated, it is I, and it uses that statement to translate the name of God, which we, it's just four letters, Y-H-W-H, that we think is Yahweh. I am. Uh, the great I am, the, that whose existence is not contingent upon anything. He is the self-existent one. Like, your existence is contingent on a lot of things. Just skip a meal and you'll figure out how, like, how contingent your life is. Okay, so, so, so what we put in the space when we recognize we're having feelings of fear in the midst of a storm, what Jesus says is recognize who he is. I am. You're freaking out. You're ready to give up. You're afraid. And Jesus says, take heart. I am. It is I. Jesus is present in your storm, but you need to know that that's not just some generic spiritual statement because you have varying beliefs about Jesus. And a lot of times, one of them that we tend to think of in this type of culture is that Jesus is our butler. Like, we just kind of formulaically trick him into giving us what we think he should give us. Jesus is my bless me machine. Punch in the right code like a vending machine and boop, out comes the blessing. You, you didn't know that? Okay, so some people, think, some people think that, all right? So we have to recognize he is I am, uh, the great I am. So there's something about his identity, God's character, 
that is critically important for how we're going to get through a storm and if we're going to make it. And you don't have to be afraid, but I know that that's not helpful when you're feeling afraid. So you have to recognize something about God's character if you're going to be able to take heart. Because it's going to happen. You're going to feel afraid. The way a psalmist, one of, one of the psalms uh, for fear, if you struggle with fear, Psalm 56, uh, 23, 27, 34, 56. Those are four really good psalms, prayers about fear and what to do about it. Uh, but the way Psalm 56 phrases it, he says, when I am afraid, what will I do with that fear? When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. You have to know the you you're putting your trust in if you're going to know what to do with your fear. Because when you start feeling afraid, you start coming up with all sorts of strategies on how to figure this out, or not really how to figure it out, but how to get through it, how to survive it. And we tend to put our trust in ourselves first. And it's never really worked out that well for us. And yet we still think that that's like the best strategy. It's not. It's a terrible strategy. So who is the you that we put our trust in? There's just a, a, a couple way of seeing this, which, again, this is one of those like, hey, let's go through the whole story of the Bible and see the character of God. And let's do a little study on the names of God and all the different ways that he reveals himself as I am. I am the provider, um, which we say Jehovah Jireh, which, okay, sorry, that's a little, little nerd in me. Jehovah is not what it, it sounds like. It's like that's, that was never used. That's a complete misunderstanding. So people that are like so emphatic to use the name of God, Jehovah, are totally getting it wrong. It's, if you care, we talk about that another time. It comes from a translation and vowel issue where later people misunderstood what was being said. And so they put uh, Yehovah. They thought that's what it was. And then we in English can't say that, so we say Jehovah. So anyway, neither here nor there. Sorry, a little sidetrack. So instead of doing that, let me just give you just a few, or just really just kind of one idea about the character of God. And all I can really give you just in short little ways is just like a couple verses. But you got to know that those verses are reinforced by a whole story of your Bible. That God's character is revealed through an entire storyline from beginning to end. And these verses are only little signposts towards the reality. You need to know the reality because that's going to make all the difference. If you're going to recognize how to take heart... You have to know the character of God. So just one verse, Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, where Moses is reinforcing um, who God is. And uh, he, just, he says this, Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Uh, know, therefore, that the Lord, or Yahweh, that Y-H-W-H, uh, for all those nerds out there, it's called the Tetragrammaton. No nerds out there? Okay, I'm the only one. So if you're out there, we're homies. But... Um, if you're not, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to, I just, occasionally I nerd out on a few things. Uh, know therefore that Yahweh, your God, is God. Like the one and only true God. What kind of God? What kind of God is Yahweh, your God, who is the God? He is faithful. The faithful God who keeps covenant. That's a big one. 
That, that is the spinal cord of the storyline of the Bible, the covenant. God, God being a covenant-keeping God. God making promises and keeping them. Um, Hebrews 10 something, 20 something, 22, 10, 22. 10, Hebrews 10, 22 uh, says it in sort of New Testament reflection. He that promises is faithful to fulfill. So he's the faithful God who keeps covenant. He, will keep, he makes promises and he keeps them. And he keeps steadfast love. Steadfast love, that's an important word. Actually, in a few weeks, I'm going to start a study, or sorry, I'm going to start a series that'll last, right now I think it's scheduled for five weeks, and it's entitled Steadfast Love. So just by way of preview for you, in case you care, it'll be during the season of Advent, if that matters to you. It's entitled Steadfast Love. And that word, steadfast love, the ESV translates it steadfast love. NIV, and I think a few other translations, translates that unfailing love. If you're old school and you dig the King Jimmy, uh, the King James translators had to make up English words for this. And so you'll see loving kindness. Um, that's a made-up word at the time uh, to translate this. It's a Hebrew word that... You can't make fun of me because it's hard to say. Uh, it's a Hebrew word that's somewhat pronounced chesed. So there's a ch or a kh anytime in Hebrew when it's transliterated, uh, it translates kh. That's the clear your throat sound that I can't do very well because I'm not I'm not Jewish, but I might look it, but I'm not. Um, so this 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 the Hebrew word is chesed. Something like that. Don't make fun of me. I told you don't make fun of me. So this, this, um, this word, chesed, it, uh, it, 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 yes, it means a love, but it is, it is a promise-keeping love. And the best analogy I've come up with to, to understand what's being said in this one word is it's like um, a, an elderly husband and wife who've been married a long time, and the wife has dementia, and the husband lovingly cares and takes care of his wife who has dementia, who forgets who he is, who forgets that they're married, who forgets that there was ever a promise, and yet he steadfastly loves her regardless of it being reciprocated, regardless of her awareness of that commitment. He stays committed all the way to the end. That's chesed. And it's one of the ways that God describes his own character in Exodus 34 when he passes by Moses on the mountain and he says he is full of steadfast love. So that is the character of the God you and I serve is he keeps his promises when we don't even know they exist. He keeps his promises and shows love whether or not we reciprocate it, return it, give it back to him. Whether or not we even remember what they are, he keeps his promises and he shows love. He doesn't just do it like gritting his teeth and having to do it like some legal agreement. No, he does it with a tenderness and love. And the best New Testament understanding of that is grace. So often, 
not always, but often when you see that steadfast love or chesed, you could actually put grace there. So that's the God you and I serve. That is who Jesus is revealing when he says, take heart. So why can I take heart? Not because, oh, everything's fine. No, but because he's there, he's present, and he keeps his covenant and does it with a love that I can never fully comprehend. Uh, One of the most depressing books in your Bible is Lamentations. Read it. You'll find out what I'm talking about. Uh, It's a whole book dedicated to lament. Lament is like an offering of sorrow and sadness to God. And it's actually, it's, okay, sorry. I'm really tempted to nerd out with you guys. I don't know. Is there a nerd here that's just really pulling on me? (laughs) I don't know what it is. Uh, But Lamentations has a remarkable literary design. So there's five chapters. The first four chapters are um, what they call alphabet poems. Basically, uh, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so you'll see chapters 1, 2, and 4 have 22 verses. And each verse, each line of that poem starts with the next successive letter of the alphabet. And so it's like an orderly reflection on chaos. Chapter 3, the center of the book, uh, is three verses per letter. So the 66 uh, verses in Lamentations 3. The center of the book has this extended orderly reflection on total chaos. It's, it's, it's the poet reflecting on the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of Israel. And then chapter 5 begins to unwind into chaos. Like the order just, just can't hold on and just unwinds into chaos. And then it ends with just a tiny little measure of hope. But the center of the book, chapter 3, that's an, a 66-line poem, three verses per letter, the center of that poem is the one bright spot in the entire book. The whole book is full of sorrow and brokenness and hurt and, and just lament. And then there's a but. It's a big but. Two people got it. All right. There's a big but. <laughs> uh, the center of this poem here, I'm only just going to give you like three verses. There's about seven there that... that act as this. Uh, in verse 21, he says, but this I call to mind, which means I remember. I, I, I don't just have a flashing memory of, I intentionally remember something. But this I call to mind, so I, remember, I intentionally remember something, and my response to that memory is I have hope. What does he call to mind that gives him hope in the midst of total chaos total brokenness, just sorrow and lament. This steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The chesed of the Lord, it, it never ceasing is that like, it's at volume 10 and never goes to volume one, regardless of your ability to hear it. You with me? Because like when you're in the storm, it feels like God's a million miles away. Like you are totally abandoned and life is falling apart. Welcome to Lamentations. Life's falling apart. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope that the steadfast, the chesed of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness.
So take heart, it is I, I am. Who is this I am? The one whose commitment to his word, whose promises, who shows consistent and never-ending love for you, that's the one that's present telling you to take heart. That's the only one I can listen to and believe that says take heart. Everybody else just seems full of something when they tell me to take heart. But God, the one that's full of steadfast love that never ends, I can trust him. That's where I put my trust. And if I remember how faithful he has been, then I have hope that in this situation that I don't see an answer to, that I have no idea how it's going to get resolved, it seems impossible and it's probably going to kill me, I can still hope. Not because I see any evidence of things changing now, but because I can see the one who's in charge of the universe who shows steadfast love to me. That he doesn't just in a legal agreement fulfill his promises. No, he loves me and fulfills his promise to me. So now, that's who he is, and it reminds me who I am. So I can't start with me, because if I start with me, I'm going to fall apart, because I'm terrible. And then when I'm, you know, freaking out in a storm, I am even more terrible, making horrible decisions. So I can remember him, I can recognize his identity. Now, by recognizing his identity, I should recognize my own. If I'm recognizing his steadfast love, then I need to recognize what his commitment to me is. And one of the places that you can see that is in Isaiah chapter 43, the first three verses. Isaiah 43, uh, 1 through 3, it says this. But now, thus says Yahweh. Again, this is the same, the God, remember, just Deuteronomy 7, 9 that Yahweh, your God, is God, the faithful God, the covenant-keeping God, the one who shows steadfast love. Okay, that Yahweh. Yahweh says to you and I, all right, he who created you, O Jacob, who formed you. This is very personal for me. I don't know if y'all know that, but who formed you. So not just created like poof, you came into existence, but actually took careful attention to form you a specific way. And he says this, fear not, don't be afraid, fear not, for I have done something. Remember, this is the one who keeps steadfast love. He's done something. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. This is important. You are mine. So who is he? The covenant-keeping God who will fulfill his promise. And not just because he has to, but because he loves us. That's who he is. So who am I? I'm his. Okay, nothing about the storm has changed so far. But that space that I can make a choice to take heart, what do I put in that space? The one who says, I'm here. I am the great I am who created me, who formed me. Now, who am I to him? I'm his. And then from that, that identity, verse 2, when you pass through the water, when, 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 there's no if there. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Whether you can recognize it or not, whether you feel it or not, that's a promise he has. So he keeps it. Because he's the covenant-keeping God. 
So whether or not you feel it, he is there. So we get our feelings in order. That's why you'll have those feelings. You just get to choose what to do with them once you recognize you have them. You feel like he's not there. He's ignored you. He's passed you by. Well, that's a wrong feeling. You're going to have that feeling. But what do you do with it once you recognize you have it? Let it go because it's not true. I'm with you. I will be with you. And through the rivers, they'll not overwhelm you. That's a promise. He's going to keep it. We, what are we going to do about it? They're not going to overwhelm you when you walk through the fire. No if there. <laughs> when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. And then reiterating, who is he? For I am the Lord your God. I'm the Holy One of Israel, and I'm the one who saves you. Take heart. It is I. I, the one who formed you, the one who created you, the one who, I don't mean own you, but I do mean own you, like that, that, that you're his. It is I who created you, formed you, I redeemed you, called you by name. I am your savior. That I says when you walk through the waters, when you're in the storm, it's not going to overwhelm you. It's going to feel like it is but it's not. When you go through the fire, it's not going to burn you up and consume you. That storm you're in, you have a promise that it's not going to kill you. You say, but what if it does? I'm sticking with God on this one, okay? Okay. So that's the one who says, it is I, and that's who you are. And this is something, again, I'm still talking about you growing in Christ but the way you grow in Christ isn't necessarily through sermons, though that's helpful. I hope it's helpful anyway. That's kind of what I do for a living, so I hope it's helpful. But actually, where the rubber meets the road, where it goes from head knowledge into true trust or faith, is when you're in the storm. So the storm actually becomes the way in which you grow. The thing that is meant to kill you, because if storms come from the enemy, even your own stupid storms. They're meaning, they're meaning to kill you. And if you let them, they can. But you and I are told to take heart and recognize who's present with you in that storm and who makes a promise to you in that storm. Are you going to believe that? So let me just quickly remind you who you are, and I'll just, this is like a whole series in itself, just so you know. So what I'm saying, I'm running the risk of not explaining it enough to you, which I'm willing to take just to encourage you a little bit. But in Matthew chapter 3, you have the baptism of Jesus where we, we see the identity not just of Jesus, but the identity of Jesus as a human being that we are identified. If you and I are in Christ, what's true of him becomes true of you, right? Right? So that's what in Christ is, is that you have taken on his identity and you've given up the right to shape your own identity. Okay. Remember, it is I. So we have recognized something about him. Now we need to recognize something about us. So Matthew chapter 3, two quick verses, 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, 
Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove coming to rest on him. And then, verse 17, and behold, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, for a moment here, let's recognize a beloved son or beloved child, because this is what's true of Jesus becomes true of you, okay? So, a, you are his beloved child. You are his beloved daughter, his beloved son, with whom he is well pleased. Let's recognize for a moment that Jesus, up to this point, has done nothing. We have a little story about his miraculous birth, a tiny little story of him at 12, but he doesn't do anything. He asks questions, okay? So he's, he's done no miracles. He, as far as we know, he was, you know, lower middle class. So he hasn't like, you know, he's, no, he's not powerful. He hasn't done anything. And yet, beloved son is like, beloved is the, the son or the child in your case, the child that is the chosen object of my love. That's beloved. Beloved isn't just that I have love and I sort of spread it out wide and it just so happens some of it lands on you. No, beloved means that I channel all of my love in your direction. Jesus hasn't done anything and he is the, like all of God's love is channeled to him. With whom I'm well pleased. Pleased in what? He didn't win a trophy for anything. It doesn't say anything about his report card. It doesn't say anything about his Christmas bonuses. Are you with me? So Jesus, without having to have earned it, done anything to deserve it, is the chosen vessel of God's love and a delight to God and didn't have to do anything for it, just is. And what's true of him becomes true of you. So you are the chosen object of God's love and he's well pleased with you despite your stupid decisions. Like, like if, if your good decisions didn't get his pleasure, he gave it anyway, then your bad decisions doesn't remove it. That's not to say that your bad decisions are good. They're bad. They're stupid. That's like, if, if they're stupid, they're stupid. God's not like changing that. It's just he doesn't alter his pleasure in you because of you. He doesn't adjust his love based on your character because it's his own character. He gives steadfast love regardless of your character. Okay, so, so bring that into an identity, okay? So that's who you, this is who you are. So what's true of Jesus becomes true of you. If that's what was true of Jesus, then that's what's true of you. You are the beloved child of God in whom he's well pleased, and you've done nothing to deserve that. And anything you do can't alter that. You can just choose to receive it or not. You can choose to believe it or not. You can choose to reject it. But you don't get to earn it or deserve it. You just choose to receive it or not. That's, that's grace, but there is some faith required. Faith is just like to turn around and receive it. 
So this is the identity of Jesus. So what the Lord says about you is that you are loved. Not because you deserve it, not because you've been a good little trooper, but because he loves you anyway, because it's his own character. Yeah? So what's true of Jesus becomes true of you. God loves you like the Father loves Jesus. Okay. You are accepted. That isn't to say that like everything about you is totally perfect and awesome and never has to grow or mature. It's just to say you're accepted whether or not you've deserved it. Like, like if Jesus accepts you, that means that he's okay that you come to him in the midst of sin and all that. He doesn't have to approve the sin to accept you. You're accepted. And you are cared for. You are taken care of. That's, that's your identity. That's who you are. You, that's not hard to understand. But this is your life's work of living it out. Like, like you'll spend your life growing in that identity. That's what we mean by growing people in Christ. is isn't just giving you cognitive understanding of those things. It's so that in the storm, when you don't believe any of it, you're reminded of it. Life stinks right now, but you are loved. All hell seems breaking loose in your life, and you are accepted. You have messed everything up on your own doing, and yet you are cared for. Because it is I. Don't be afraid. That's why you don't have to be afraid if you actually live that out. Because the alternative, and what you could see in Matthew 4, you just kind of turn the page to the next chapter in Matthew 4, you see the temptations in the wilderness, and this is immense, all those things. But let's just, I'll tell you what the world says about you, and this is what everything in our world tries to convince you that is your identity. You are what you do. You are the sum total of your actions and decisions. You are your job. You are your production. Your value in life is based on what you produce, what you do. And if you even just think, this is social analysis, social critique, actually. If you think about the GDP of the gross domestic product, like how, how, are, how is the health of a nation measured it's measured by the economy. The, economy is, the health of an economy is measured by the exchange of money, which means if you're not buying or selling, you are of no value. You are not contributing to the health of a nation unless you're doing. And everything about your life, every department store you go to, every commercial you listen to is trying to tell you you are what you do. It's true. Just believe me. You are what others think you are. You are your social media influence. You are your network. You are your peer group. You are who the next class above you says you are. 
Okay, that's, there, there's, if that's the way your life is. And if everything in your life is pointing in that direction, that's what, that's, that's, that's what you're being told you are. And you get a choice. You don't know that's what's being told, so if you, don't, if you aren't conscious of it, you become that. And you are what you have. So much more there. This is, honestly, this is why we stay committed to a local church. If anything else, it's because of this. Because you need, this is why, this is why you come to gathered worship services because you need reminded over and over and over and over, you are not what you do. You are not what others think you are and you are not what you have. You are a beloved child of God in whom God is well pleased. Because the other six days a week are trying to convince you that's what you are. And if you're not aware of it, you will start believing that lie. So when you're in the storm, you get a chance to see which one of those lies have you been believing. Because that lie will become exposed when you are in the midst of a storm. When you're freaking out and falling apart and thinking life's going to end, it's probably you, you believing one of those lies. And that is what's being shattered. That could be heavy. So if I sounded flippant in that, it's not because I don't love you and I don't actually care. It's because I have to be reminded of that. Because when I'm freaking out, it's generally because I've started to think, well, I am who others think I am. And my influence in other people's life is being compromised. I'm freaking out. When actually, am I really what they think I am? Am I okay? What if you could live free from that? What if you could be free from the need to have others' approval? What if you could be free from having to have anything? I mean, Jesus tells us, don't be anxious about the common things in life. The heathens are freaking out about that stuff. You seek first the kingdom, all those other things will be added to you. The one who has everything in life and has God has no more than the one who has nothing in life and yet still has God. But we don't believe that because we believe the marketers who tell us we need more and what we have is not good enough, so we need to pack that away and get more because you're not enough. And we believe lies that tell us we're not enough. And yet, what's true of you is that you're a beloved child of God in whom he's well pleased despite how much you have or don't have. Despite what others think about you or what they don't think about you. Despite your income level. Despite your relationship status. Independent of all those things. Part of Jesus, the conclusion of Jesus' prayer in John 17, it says this, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. It is I. I am. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. So when you're in a storm... 
you have an opportunity to continue to recognize who God is in that storm for you. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The same love the Father has for the Son is the same love God has for you and I. And we forget that when we're freaking out, which is why we need to take heart. We need to remember who God is despite our circumstances. Remember who God is, and because we can remember who God is, we remember who we are, who we are to him. This is why we come to the table of the Lord. And that's what we, what we do, we gather. Sorry, I went a little long on that one. I'm just trying to prod you towards recognizing something, which is why when you're in the middle of a storm, you need to remember. And this is exactly what happens at the table of the Lord. This is exactly what Jesus says to us at the table. Paul reflecting on that. Uh, whoever, y'all can come on up. It's not going to be too much of a distraction. Whenever Paul reflects on Jesus' statement about the table, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and 24, it says, The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Think about it. This, this, this is a re representation of me and what I've done for you. It's remembering who he is and who we are. Who he is, the one who gave his life for us, who we are, the one it was for. And every time we take that bread, we remember this is who Jesus is. This is how much God loved us, that he would give his only begotten son. In the same way, he took the cup, and when he had blessed it, he gave it to them. He says, this cup is the new covenant. This is the new covenant. Covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. What is this covenant, this new covenant, that because of Jesus, your sins and iniquities, he doesn't even remember. It's been forgiven, and he's removed it from his mind. So when you're totally flipping out and you think you did it to yourself he says I have a covenant with you that I don't even remember that and as often not as rarely <laughs> some churches do it rarely as often as you drink it you do that in remembrance of him and so just as we conclude this service you can go ahead and stand with me as we conclude this I want you to remember Remember who God is for you. For a moment, pause the storm and call this to mind and therefore you have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. Great is his faithfulness. And that was proven in the life and the sacrifice of Jesus. That's, that's who's the one who tells you, take heart. Don't be afraid. So come, receive the bread and the cup. And 
take these elements back to your seat and we'll all partake together. So come, come to the table of the Lord to receive the body of the Lord broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.